in Iran, there is an idea that is never far away. That the world, or at least the outside world, is false, evil. Both geography and hostile neighbors have played their part in this. But the most important factor, no doubt, is the state religion, Twelver Shiism. Its teachings induce you to reject the powers that be. To understand why, we have to step into our time machine once again and return to the sect's traumatic early history. We will then see how a series of betrayals, or perhaps presumed betrayals, has instilled in it a deep sense of martyrdom. And it will then become clear why a Shiite state is, strictly speaking, a contradiction in terms. The split between Shiites and Sunnis revolves around one simple question, first posed in the 7th century. Who should have succeeded the Prophet Muhammad? The resulting dispute has caused animosity ever since, with no end in sight. And then to consider that the Caliphate was abolished long ago. Talk about water under the bridge, right? There have been more succession crises over the centuries than you could count. The history of any country is filled with them. And yet, none had a more lasting impact than this one. Because the question over the caliphal succession is not just about who should have ruled the Middle East more than a thousand years ago, it also has far-reaching implications for governance, justice, and the nature of Islam itself, and these are bound to remain relevant. To understand this, we must first realize that Muhammad was not only a prophet, but also a political leader. So expect from him no statements in the manner of give the emperor what the emperor is due. In the early Muslim world, there was no separation between mosque and state, or between theology and law. In the B-movie Machete, Michel Rodriguez proposes that there is the law, and then there is what's right. But according to strict interpretations of Islam, that's not true. For there can be no law outside Sharia. Since Muhammad called himself the seal of prophets, after his death, revelation was sealed, meaning definitively completed. And consequently, legal and moral issues must for all eternity be tested against an early medieval text. That raises problems as you can imagine. The Quran is rather vague on whether, say, photography is halal or haram. It's not explicitly forbidden, needless to say, but might it not fall under the ban on creating idols? In this way, you could argue over any tiny aspect of daily life. And the less the situation resembles 7th century Arabia, the harder it becomes to apply these texts to daily life. So who is capable of interpreting the Quran? How much leeway does that person have? What rules of logic should he apply? What sources can he fall back on? These are all explosive matters, all the more so since the Quran is supposed to be the literal word of Allah. You have the Gospel according to Matthew or according to Luke, but by contrast, the Quran starts with the command recite. So some would say that no one can interpret or even paraphrase it at all. For you might add, remove or change something, and that would be close to sacrilege. In the series of Arabia, we've talked quite a bit about how the Sunnis handled these issues. The Shiites, however, came up with entirely different answers. That's because they had a completely different idea about what it meant to be a successor to the Prophet. And that, of course, is directly related to the matter of who should have succeeded him in the first place and why. Muhammad himself did not take a clear position on this, as far as we know at least. He had no living sons, and his daughter Fatima was not even taken into consideration. So the Muslim leadership decided to choose the best candidate from among their own. First Abu Bakr, then Umar, Uthman, and finally Ali. Since these caliphs were selected by mortals, the Sunnis held that they had no God-given infallible understanding of the Quran. It logically followed that the caliph was not uniquely qualified to interpret holy texts. It therefore fell to experts on the sacred texts, known as the ulama, to develop legal doctrine on their own. Schools would later form around those with the most influence. Today, there are still four schools of Sunnism, which each dominate one particular region. 
Each of them still holds that the Quran is uncreated and thereby stresses the need to stick closely to the text as well as to the testimonies about the Prophet known as Hadiths. This has not always been uncontroversial though. The early school of the Mutazilites argued that since the Quran was the word of Allah, it must have been a mere creation, which would probably diminish its standing somewhat. And indeed, the Mutazilites held that revelation didn't literally hold all the answers. You also needed independent reasoning according to them. Now, in the early 9th century, the Caliph of Baghdad, Al-Mahmoun, jumped on this. He also insisted that the Quran was a mere creation. And that wasn't just a theoretical issue to him. He ordered that anyone who openly disputed this claim was to be executed. So he meant business. To Al-Mahmoun, the idea of a created Quran was a means to an end. It allowed him to demand the exclusive right to set the boundaries of interpretation himself. This would have turned the caliph into a figure similar to his great rival, the Byzantine emperor, who had the last say on matters of Christian doctrine. Now, by the way, the Bible doesn't say that the emperor should decide over matters of orthodoxy either, nor the pope for that matter. Al-Mahmoun's persecutions lasted for almost 20 years, but the protests did not abate. And eventually, later caliphs would have to accept that they could not decide such dogmatic issues. We've seen earlier that the caliphs originally were political leaders, but that they lost their political power um, to the emirs and the sultans. Al-Mahmoun had tried to become a religious authority, but now that this had also failed, what were they now exactly? Well, for the most part, their power became symbolic. The power of the ulama, on the other hand, would only grow. It would take a long time before rulers again dare to infringe upon their prerogatives. And in some countries, law and judgment are still their domain, as we saw in the series on Arabia. That doesn't mean that the ulama and the state were constantly at odds. On the contrary, many tended to approach their work systematically, rationally and pragmatically. The Persian elite knew from experience that predictability was important for the efficient functioning of an empire, and the clergy, given their important position and stake in this, they helped bring this about. In a way, it reminds me of the separation of powers in modern democracies. If the justice system acts predictably, follows the law, and does not bow to the whims of a government that is attractive to citizens and investors alike, and a state that has such an independent judiciary has an advantage over others. I am of course not claiming that early Islamic states had the same idea as Montesquieu, but I do think this division of labor between officials and scholars could contribute to the well-functioning of states. The Shiites, however, seldom participated in such matters. They were either excluded or abstained from public life. This may have contributed to what we could call an anti-political attitude. I think most of us can relate to that. Most people, myself included, stand on the sidelines. We are little more than spectators to the world of politics. Bismarck said something like, if you don't have the stomach to watch sausage being made, you certainly wouldn't, witness, wouldn't want to witness the making of laws, because that's even more distasteful. But perhaps it were better if we were more aware of the practical difficulties of government. For since we don't have to face the need to compromise ourselves or to make unpopular decisions, we are perhaps a little unrealistic in our expectations. Many of us would only be content if there were lower taxes, more government expenses and lower debt, no doubt. And perhaps in a similar vein, early Shiites, who would not and could not assert secular authority, concluded that government was dirty business and that only the spiritual leader was worth listening to. And that spiritual leader was the Imam. Now, hang on a second. Weren't we just talking about a caliph? So what's up with this Imam fellow? Who were these Imams exactly? Well, this also has to do with the early struggle for the caliphate. So let's go back to the 7th century. In the small council where Abu Bakr was chosen, Ali wasn't even present, and he clearly wasn't too happy about not being consulted. It took him some time before he accepted Abu Bakr's leadership, but he finally did so, so as to avoid civil war. 
but perhaps he was still not altogether on board, for he kept aloof from politics. Maybe this was his temperament, or maybe it was by necessity, but in any case, it gave him the reputation of piety, spirituality and humility. And you could say that this mindset of his foreshadowed the quietest attitude of early Shiites. Ali allegedly warned his followers not to seek out this world, even if it would seek out them. One could interpret this as a call to resignation or to resistance. Now, to be sure, Ali made no attempt to overthrow the caliphal government, but slowly the idea gained traction that the caliphs had usurped him, among his followers at least, if not, if not with Ali himself. In fact, this has been proposed as a reason why he adopted the title of Imam instead of Caliph when he finally became the leader himself. Perhaps it was just another sign of his characteristic modesty. He may have insisted that he was not really a successor to Muhammad. Imam simply means he who leads in prayer. Or it may have been a way of suggesting that the title of Caliph had been tarnished by his predecessors and that he was of a different stock. Shiites later placed a lot of importance on this, however, and this had to do with why they thought that Ali deserved the job. Not because of a decision by mortals, but because God willed it. After all, Allah had seen fit that Ali and no other would father the Prophet's grandchildren. Now for Sunnis, the job of the Caliph was just to keep the community from falling apart. So to compromise among the leadership about who that leader would be that was a logical step to take. And if you thought that a caliph got his job simply because he was chosen by mortals, then it would be strange to suppose that this somehow gave him superhuman powers. But with the Shiites, it was a different story. For them, the Muslim leader was more like a divinely anointed king rather than a tribal chief. The imam was, was who he was because he had the right blood in his veins. And humans just had to accept that. As you'll recall, Ali was even murdered by his most fervent supporters because he wanted to negotiate over his position with his rival Muawiyah. By making God's will subject to negotiation, in their eyes, he had forsaken his right to rule. And to live, apparently. I'm not sure I pointed this out already, but there are innumerable ironies to this. Muawiyah the man who supposedly fought on the side that favored elected caliphs, would go on to found the first Muslim dynasty. And hereditary succession became the norm in Sunni states ever since. Later caliphs placed great emphasis on their own family bonds to Muhammad. The Umayyads were related to the Prophet by marriage, the Abbasids traced their roots back to the Prophet's uncle Abbas, and so forth. By contrast, the radicals who murdered Ali for negotiating about God's choice gave rise to the most democratic movement in Islam, in air quotes. Notably, the Ibadis, who in theory select their Imams regardless of his lineage. Further in the future, the principles become even more blurred. The last caliphate had been abolished for more than a century. Now, if the big idea behind Sunnism is to keep the Muslim community united and avoid fitna, then why don't the Sunnis try to agree on a new caliph? Meanwhile, Oman, the only country where Ibadis are dominant, is home to one of the longest ruling dynasties in the world. So what were these sects fighting over again? Well, a big reason why the waters between the sects didn't become more shallow over time has to do with the powers that Shiites attribute to their Imam. If by taking on that title, Ali had indeed wanted to stress that he was not really a successor to Muhammad, then it's pretty ironic that Shiites attribute much more power to their Imams than Sunnis ascribe to their Caliph. According to Shiites, the Imam possesses a unique insight in scripture, which is magically passed on through the ties of blood. They tend to place the Imam's sayings on about the same level as the Quran itself, which they, like the Mutazilites, regard as created. For Sunnis, this would be akin to a claim of prophethood crossing a red line. This is a fundamental disagreement. It became worse as Shiites and Sunnis went their own separate ways and developed their own doctrines. The fact that they did 
had to do with the conflict that broke out as soon as Ali finally won the position that he felt entitled to. He was immediately challenged yet again. Aisha, the Prophet's favorite wife and Abu Bakr's daughter, demanded that he find and punish Uthman's murderers. Perhaps he hesitated because many of those who had besieged the third caliph were in fact known supporters of his. Which does not imply that he had anything to do with it, let's be clear about that. There may have been good reasons why Uthman's murderers had not been brought to trial. But things escalated, and soon Ali and Aisha found themselves on opposite sides of an armed conflict. Aisha's side was defeated in the Battle of the Camel, named after the animal on which she sat while her helpers fell all around her. Ali still did not punish her at that point. He wanted to end the fitna, thereby in effect following later Sunni doctrine. Later Shiites, however, have become very hateful against Aisha's memory. And this has consequences, for she is an important source of Sunni hadiths, testimonies about the Prophet on which Muslim jurisprudence is based. Shiites disregard Aisha's hadiths, like Sunnis dismiss the sayings of the Shia Imams. This helps explain why Sunni and Shiite Islam and jurisprudence differs on so many points, despite following the same Quran. And still the fitna wasn't over. Ali faced another, more formidable challenger, Muawiyah, Uthman's relative and the governor of Syria. He demanded vengeance for the third caliph's death, for which he now blamed Ali. Now Muawiyah was perhaps the preeminent power politician of his day, and in that sense he was Ali's polar opposite. Ali was willing to end the dispute by arbitration, after which, of course, he was murdered by his own supporters. Now, after the death of their champion, his supporters had little choice but to give in, while Muawiyah consolidated his grip. Ali's son made a pact with Muawiyah, promising not to contest his rule any further. He retreated to Medina with his family. Now, that was the city where the Prophet had found refuge after he was chased from Mecca by the Umayyads, Muawiyah's family. As you can imagine, there was still some bad blood, so it's not surprising that Ali's sons had some supporters in Medina. They remained quiet, however, like their father had endured the first three caliphs, some might say. But then, Muawiyah chose to pass the caliphate on to his own son, Yazid, which meant the beginning of the first Muslim dynasty. It also meant the end of the agreement with the Shiites. Now, Yazid was no fool. He foresaw trouble. And he demanded that Ali's son Hossein pledge his fealty to him. The young man refused, however, and he could then expect the full force of the Umayyads to come down on him. But he caught a glimmer of hope, for he received an invitation from the inhabitants of Kufa, who wanted to accept him as their leader. Kufa was an important garrison town in present-day Iraq, and that may have reminded him of how the Prophet in his day was invited to Medina, from where he reconquered his home. Hossein had little choice at this point. He had to get to Kufa before Yazid's men got to him. Alas, just before he reached his destination, he was intercepted by a much stronger force, forced to give battle at Karbala. The odds were extremely uneven. It was more a massacre than anything else, apparently. Hossein was killed there, together with his whole entourage. On Ashura, the Shiites still commemorate the heroic death of this grandson of Muhammad, who had sat on the Prophet's lap, as they say. The final resting places of Ali and Hussein, respectively in Najaf and Karbala in Iraq, are now Shiism's main sites of pilgrimage, and that links Shia communities in Iraq and Iran, which regularly creates tension between these two countries, as we saw. But one thing, I think, needs to be stressed at this point. While Shiites frequently curse the name Yazid, it's not as if Sunnis celebrate uh, the demise of Hossein. On the contrary, they agree that it was a tragedy. But they also think that you should leave the past where it belongs, lest the vendetta continue it forever, which is indeed what has happened. Some of Ali's relatives managed to escape the slaughter. A son of Hussein had not participated because he was too sick, 
and Yazid allowed him to continue a life of seclusion. He is regarded as the false Imam. The Shiites were spread out all over the region, but most of all, they, get, they went to regions where people were dissatisfied with the policies of the Umayyads anyway, like in Persia. There presumably were other factors involved, besides religious principles. For instance, there was a fervent regional rivalry between Syria and the eastern provinces. Connected to this was the Arabs' losing struggle to maintain the supremacy in their newly conquered lands. As part of that struggle, they discouraged conversions, since Muslimhood was one of these things that distinguished them from their subjugated peoples. This, of course, provoked accusations. Greed had apparently taken precedence over the spreading of the faith. One could argue that some of these wannabe Muslims only sought to escape the high infidel tax, but that was easy to deny. It was much harder to explain why they had to remain second-class citizens. One of the first to rebel against these corrupt Umayyads was Zayd ibn Ali. Now He is the adopted ancestor of the Zaydi or Fiver Shiites, currently the dominant sect of Yemen. We talked about them in the series on Arabia. According to the Zaydis, Zayd deserved the imamate because he was the member of Ali's family who was prepared to step up against tyranny. I guess you can already tell at this point that Shiism would be well suited for rebellions or revolutionary movements. Sunnism, meanwhile, adapted itself to the needs of the establishment. Just think of Al-Ghazali, who said that Muslims had no right to depose a sultan, even if he was unjust, even if he was, uh, he was sinful. Zayd's insurrection was suppressed, but that only led to um, another insurrection. It prompted an Iranian general called Abu Muslim to take up the gunlet himself. He had grown up in Kufa, which was still full of Shiite sympathizers, and probably under their influence, Abu Muslim had become Shiite himself. Not coincidentally, the focal point of his revolt was the Far East, which contained the experienced and hardened border garrisons, among whom Abu Muslim had the status of a hero. Many rejected, aspiring Muslims came from the eastern provinces too. To their chagrin, local elites were excluded from the high positions to which they felt entitled. Even middle-ranking positions were increasingly assigned to Arabs lately, and many hoped that Abu Muslim would end this perceived injustice. The Umayyads were duly defeated and deposed, but the Shiites would soon have reason to feel betrayed again. The triumphant general did not claim the caliphate for himself, but ceded it to the Abbasids. They claimed to be loosely related to the Prophet through his uncle Abbas, which may have been good enough for many Shiites at the time, but unnervingly for the new caliph, it seems that Abu Muslim also boasted of being descended from the Prophet himself. And he was already popular, understandably, because of his military exploits and his popular reign as governor. It was not so far-fetched to fear that he might soon take the throne for himself. Many Shiites and Persians considered him the rightful ruler anyway. The Abbasids also feared that they would be controlled from the east, where Abu Muslim had his power base. The revolution had shown that this region was key after all. We saw in the last episode that this would prove a warranted fear, for that is exactly what would happen during the so-called Persian intermezzo not long after. So a trap was set. Abu Muslim was lured to Baghdad to appear before the caliph, where he was accused of treachery and killed. This was already seen as outrageous in the eastern provinces. To add insult to injury, the Abbasids then adopted a centralizing policy. If these plans went ahead, the Persians would once again be dominated, not from Syria this time, but from Iraq. So they were less than enthusiastic. But for Shiites too, this felt like a betrayal. Abu Muslim became a new martyr, a victim of tyranny. The caliph came to understand that Shiites would never accept him, and he started to crack down on them. So many were forced to deny that they were Shiites, to avoid harassment. Concealment of faith out of self-protection, that would become an important theological principle in Shiism, known as Takijah. Sunnis are much more reluctant to say that it's okay to lie about your beliefs. 
But then again, they haven't been persecuted as much through the ages. If you are on the side of state religion, you might prefer possible enemies to be out in the open, wouldn't you? While if you're a vulnerable animal among predators, you can only survive if you know how to hide. There are shades of Darwin here, seems to me. Like species, ideas tend to adapt to their environment. Or rather, those that are not well adapted tend to die out. This theory works nicely for religions too. The main difference with the evolution of species, I think, is that the adaptations of religions don't just happen at random. There is an intelligent design here. Even if the intelligence in question is that of the clerical leadership. For instance, in the last episode, we saw that the assassins perfected the idea of concealing their Shia beliefs. That would be the key to their remarkable success. Some Shiites could still practice their faith in the open, however. Notably, in places where people were unhappy with central government anyway. Soon enough, the East reclaimed its independence from Baghdad, and in subsequent years, the Abbasids' original fears became reality. The Persians began to dominate the entire region, the capital included. Meanwhile, since ethnicity was no longer a criterion for promotion, the composition of the Abbasid elite began to change to the advantage of Persians too. And the fact that they could no longer be excluded anyway, that also meant that there was no more reason to refuse their conversion. On the contrary, being a Muslim, that became a precondition for entering a leading position. This must have provided a major boost to Islamization, especially in Persia. But, as we will see, the Islam that these new Muslims practiced was often of a peculiar sort. And this, again, had to do with the mountainous landscape of Iran. Not only had this provided shelter to many Shiites, but also to practitioners of pre-Islamic religions, many of whom would now become Muslim. More on that later. But while the Iranians were taking their place under the sun, the Shiites again found themselves frozen out of power. And what's worse perhaps, even their spiritual leaders were not left alone. The Imams were, allegedly, all murdered, usually poisoned, on the orders of the Caliph of the day. The thing with poison, of course, is that it's very hard to prove who did it, or even that it happened at all at that time. There's a lot of speculation going on here, needless to say. But for Shiites, there was a clear lesson, a common threat to these stories about the martyrdom of the Imams. Namely, that you cannot trust worldly powers, that they will always betray the true faith. While Sunnis aimed to reconcile faith and secular authority, Shiites came to see them as irreconcilable. In their view, the rightful leaders of Islam were repeatedly usurped by the very people who murdered them. Michael Axworthy makes the fitting analogy of a parallel universe in which the papal chair would be occupied by the descendants of Judas Iscariot. To complete this metaphor, you might add that these false popes would then have to keep poisoning the rightful leaders of the Catholic faith for centuries on end. So you see, by this point, what started off as an almost technical discussion turned into a fight between good and evil. The odds of finding a compromise became ever smaller with that. The gaping ravine between the Shiites and the worldly powers would widen further as the Muslim empire splintered. Shiites saw that as proof that the worldly governments had failed. And how could it? How could it be otherwise if their leaders had usurped the position of the true Imams? As the crisis deepened, I imagine that many people became convinced that the Shiites may have had a point. Things needed to change, obviously. It may have been this that opened the way for the remarkable Shiite century that we talked about in the last episode. In the 900s, Two Shiite powers came to dominate the Islamic world. You had the Sevener Shiites, known as the Fatimids in Egypt, and in Iran, you had the Twelver Shiites, known as the Buyids. But I think it's long past time that I spent a little more time on explaining what these uh, terms, uh, Sevener or Twelver Shiite, what these really mean. The word Shia comes from Shiat Ali, which means party of Ali. Thus, the term Shiite itself implies factional strife, something that Sunnis must avoid at all costs. To prove their point, 
they might point to the fact that Shiite Islam would itself continue to fragment. This tendency is reinforced, or perhaps made inevitable, by the Shiites' emphasis on hereditary leadership. As the history of Europe makes abundantly clear, this always leads to succession crisis. And this was even more inevitable in the Muslim world, where firstborn sons were not automatically the first in line. And also, given the complex and extensive networks of kinship that were customary there. So the matter of who is the right successor is not black and white. People disagreed about the criteria by which to settle the issue. For instance, the Zaydis believed that Zayd ibn Ali should be the fifth Imam because he had resisted the Umayyads and through his brave stand had proven himself to be worthy of the position. That's why the Zaydis are also called Fiver Shiites. After the death of the sixth Imam, there already emerged another crisis. He had disinherited his original heir, called Ismail. The imamate was then passed on to a younger son instead. Ismail did not contest this, for he was presumed dead. Well, case closed, you might think? Well, no. The so-called Sevener Shiites believe that Ismail escaped and that he was the true Imam, which is why they are also known as the Ismailites. Now, I've always tried to avoid that term because it's so confusing. The founder of the Safavid dynasty, whom we talked about a lot, was also named Ismail. And as you may remember, he was a Twelver Shiite, like most Iranians today. Now, don't worry if you can't recount the exact difference between these sects. Just try to see the big picture here. And that is one of endless fractionalization. Just for the heck of it, look up Shia schisms on the internet you'll immediately come across an extremely complicated graph that displays all the different branches. Well, perhaps not all of them, for even these graphs are often simplifications, as is this podcast. I think that's okay, though, for most of these groups don't play a significant role in world politics anyway. These days, there is only one that is very important, the Twelver sect. And the reason for that can become clear if we examine the history of their great rivals, the Seveners. In the Middle Ages, the Seveners were perhaps the most important sect because they found a powerful patron in the Fatimids of Egypt. But since the Sevener branch of Shiism holds that the line of the Imam continues, that inevitably meant yet more succession crisis, which would become a problem for the Fatimids themselves. For instance, they sent missionaries to the East to make more converts, and out of these proselytizers later emerged the notorious order of the assassins. This might have been a vital ally for the Fatimids, except that already in 1094, they fell out with each other. And I'm sure you can guess what the rift was all about. What exactly happened is unclear. After the death of the Fatimid Imam, there was a palace coup against his son. The plotters rejected his first successor, called Nizar. But the assassins, which is the wrong term in this era, disagreed with this. They claimed that Nizar's son had found shelter in their mountain stronghold in Alamut, which came in handy for now they no longer had to bow to their former masters in Egypt. From then on, the assassins belonged to yet another sect, known as the Nizaris. For most of these sects, constant fragmentation proved fight fatal. The Nizaris managed to survive, albeit by the skin of their teeth. They hold that their current Imam, known as the Aga Khan, is a rich businessman and a philanthropist. Last time I checked, he was living in Geneva, and he is not really a big influence on world politics anymore. There is one sect, however, that did manage to escape this spiral of disunity. And not coincidentally, this is the only one that is still relevant to this day, the Twelvers. Why? Because unlike the Seveners, they abandoned the idea of a living Imam altogether. Let's talk a bit about them. Remember that the Seveners believed that Ismail had escaped his assassins and that they continued to regard him as the true Imam? Well, not all Shiites would buy that, and they recognized Ismail's younger brother instead but they would soon have to face another problem. For in the 9th century, their 11th Imam died without producing a male heir. So now the problem was no longer that there were too many candidates, there were too few. 
Strictly speaking, the line of imams had thereby ended. So that took care of the succession problem once and for all. But given the imam's indispensable role as the sole interpreter of the message of Allah, this threatened to cause insurmountable problems for the community. Luckily, a miraculous solution presented itself. The 11th imam had already been living under house arrest on the orders of the caliph, so he had to communicate with his followers through an intermediary. Now, when the imam died, this aid would reveal that the imam had had a son that no one knew the existence of, and this son had apparently escaped his enemies by going into occultation. One day, he would return as the Messiah, known to Muslims as the Mahdi, and he would prepare the world for the reign of God on earth, together with the Prophet Jesus, by the way. Helpfully, in the meantime, the hidden Imam could still communicate with his people through his messenger, the man who had made his existence known to the world. So unlike a prophet, he didn't claim that he was talking to God, but that he was talking to the hidden Imam, which would also give him quite some power, as you can imagine. There would be a few more of these representatives following in his footsteps, but at some point it seems that the Imam of the Age had had enough, for he decided to go one level deeper and enter into major occultation, as it is known. And that would last until the end time. Quick side note, this notion of a Mahdi was not an invention of that time, or even of the Shiites. It already existed, but among Sunnis it's never been that prominent. Although interestingly that has begun to change of late, my hypothesis would be that this has to do with the desperate state of Sunni communities. Many feel discriminated, like the Shiites did in the time of the Abbasids. The idea of a savior is more appealing if you are not satisfied with the state of the world, but I'm digressing. So the Twelver Shiites found themselves without an Imam. But not everyone saw that as a problem, most notably the Buyids. A living Imam would have caused them headaches, no doubt, but they would have nothing to fear from an Imam that was safely hidden. Perhaps it's with that in mind that not long after the occultation, they adopted Twelverism. In a way, this reasoning applies to the current Iranian regime as well. It's not as if they're looking forward to the return of the Imam. There is even a branch of the secret service that is tasked with tracking down people pretending to be the Imam. Now, what do you think? Would you expect that to happen? The job of Imam comes with responsibilities, sure, but also with nice perks. Once a vacancy opened up, many candidates applied for the job. Now, since the Mahdi's arrival was supposed to usher in a new era of justice, these self-proclaimed Imams sometimes claimed that the rules of Sharia no longer applied. They would make their own rules instead, which, I can imagine, is something that certain types of people would love to play with. For instance, one of the assassin's leaders suddenly proclaimed a new era, and the Sharia null and void. Among other things, he held a banquet in the middle of Ramadan, and demanded that worshippers face their backs to Mecca. It wasn't exactly optional either. Those that stuck to the old rulebook faced dead by stoning, Old Testament style. Still, puzzlingly enough, he got away with it, and it would take time before the assassins returned to the Islamic fold. The idea of a prophetic cycle is an ancient one, and not completely alien to mainstream Islam. Muhammad himself recognized that other prophets had come before him, including Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. He just said that he was the bringer of the final message of God. The older messages were not false, they had just become redundant, that's all. But Muhammad did rule out the possibility that there would be other prophets after him. Among Sunnis, this is almost never called into question. In Shiism, though, the idea that the prophetic cycle might reopen after all, that returns regularly. We've encountered some examples already. Baba Ishaq in the 13th century unequivocally dubbed himself messenger of God. Ismail, the founder of the Safavids, presented himself as a messianic figure too. And when he arrived at what is now Imam Khomeini Airport, even the founder of the Islamic Republic was hailed as the returning Imam. But why is messianism so rampant among Shiites? 
The fact that the Imams have such high standing certainly plays a role, as does the awaited coming of a savior. But also that the fact that Shiites were so often a persecuted minority. If you're in that situation, the idea of a gutter Damarong looks more appealing than if things seem to be going your way. Messianism is something that appeals to the downtrodden. In the same way that revolution sounds better to a hungry peasant than to a fat aristocrat. Historically, Shiites thrived mainly when and where people resented the authorities anyway. But what if they took the reins of power themselves? What if a state based its own legitimacy on Shiism? Well, there is an ongoing experiment, as you know. But it has been tried before. Once he had won his kingdom, Ismail I didn't lay off his martyr's robes. On the contrary, his Safavid state was itself draped in them. This fostered the siege mentality in Iran that helped close ranks and stifle criticism. Appealing to victimhood worked so well that it had become a political impulse. The war with the Ottomans, the coup against Mossadegh, the Shah's asylum in the US, the Gulf War, the recent cancellation of the nuclear deal, all these events could be framed as repetitions of the old betrayal of Hussein. As the saying goes, every day is Ashura, everywhere is Karbala. Now, the problem with reflexes is that though they often help you survive, they are very hard to suppress. So too with this one. The fact that the Imam was the only one who could really interpret the holy law, that created problems for the justice system. Some jurists, known as the Akbaris, were very cautious about this, clinging strictly to the Quran and the teachings of past Imams. But under Shah Abbas the Great, high-ranking scholars declared that in the absence of the Imam, the Shah could fill that void. One can't help but, but be reminded of the move of Caliph al-Mahmoun centuries earlier. Only, Abbas didn't face the same kind of opposition. He was in a very strong position. Still, later, when the tide had shifted in their favor, other Shiite scholars collectively put themselves forward as most fit to interpret scripture. Under the Qajars, they gained the upper hand. These are the so-called Usulis, the group that makes up the Iranian clergy today. Many of these scholars dabbled in politics and grew rich by accepting emoluments for their work as judges. This was controversial, though, or hadn't Ali warned them to shun the world? From within the clergy, there was a call for a return to the faith's original humility, exemplified by Ali himself. In their day, the Akbaris had even dismissed the idea of communal prayer because only the hidden imam was worthy of leading it. They had a point, since the word imam itself means he who leads in prayer. By the 1800s, the Akbaris had all but tied out. But later that century, there already emerged another group of clerics, known as the Sheikhis, who reacted to what they regarded as typical Usuli grandstanding. For instance, when they visited Imam Hossein's tomb in Karbala, they respectfully stayed at the foot of the tomb, while the Usulis placed themselves at the head. The Sheikhis therefore referred to the Usulis as headstanders, denouncing their supposed lack of respect. The Usulis didn't just stand there and take it, though. They tried to excommunicate the Sheikhis' leading scholar, who reacted by wrapping himself in the, of the cloak of victimhood, something he knew always touches a nerve with Iranians and Shiites alike. The rise of such an opposition movement, I think, was inevitable. Look at the history of any religion and you will see this over and over again. Prophets or founders of religions are almost always revolutionaries. They are therefore rarely accepted with open arms. Take Jesus Christ, for instance, who chased out the moneylenders uh, from the temple. That was the sort of behavior that would get him in trouble. After a while, though, Christianity became a state religion and it began to transform itself accordingly until the clergy came to resemble the sort of people that Jesus had objected against. He famously said that a camel would find it easier to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter paradise. And then look at the Vatican, with all that marble and gold. It's this sort of apparent hypocrisy that led to the Reformation, since the admirers of the humble Ali would become so rich and powerful, 
it was inevitable, perhaps, that they would face similar accusations. And like with Luther, who was himself a priest, the main resistance came from within. People who took their faith seriously sought to purge it from corruption, and the religion itself provided them with answers. Like all ideologies that question the legitimacy of worldly authority, Shiite Islam could readily be turned against those that based their authority on it, and in extreme cases, the rebels went so far as to declare that the end time was now at hand, or that a new prophetic cycle had begun, as indeed happened in some cases during the Reformation. It was prophesied that the Mahdi would come in a time of great corruption and decline, and that was unmistakably the case in Qajar, Iran. As we've seen, unbelievers were constantly humiliating the country and robbing it of its riches. The high-ranking ulama and the shah did nothing to stop this. On the contrary, they seemed to be the only ones that prospered in all this misery. Perhaps the exclamation mark was the bloody sack of Karbala, which the shah, advertised as the protector of Shiism, could do nothing about. Some thought that it was high time for the Magdi to come and clean out the stables. And what better time than on the thousand-year anniversary of his occultation? It was speculated that, in preparation of his imminent return, the hidden imam intended to communicate with believers through a human gate, a bab, and sure enough, it was the shakis that identified him, among their own, no less. The young man was no doubt confused at first, but after a while, come to think of it, he was not just a messenger, he was the hidden imam himself. And yes, he also proclaimed that the sharia now no longer applied. That was too much blasphemy for the ulama. Of course, they were genuinely shocked. But it supposedly also didn't help that he dressed them down as hypocrites, much like Jesus had done with the Jewish establishment in his day. Also, like the Pharisees, the ulama devoted their lives to Sharia law and made a living out of it. So the notion that it was now all nil and void, that would not have been welcome, even apart from all the sincere objections that they doubtlessly had. So a clash was inevitable. Again, not unlike Jesus, the Bab was accused of treason and blasphemy by the religious and secular authorities both, and he was then dragged before a firing squad. But as you may have guessed by now, that was hardly the end of the story. The martyrdom of the Bab merely gave his movement a new lease of life. One of his followers proclaimed himself prophet. Much like the early Christians, the Babis were mercilessly persecuted which naturally produced a ton of new martyrs. Some retaliated with violence, but a few years later, by 1852, the violent faction was already wiped out. The group that clung to peaceful means, however, endured, and in time it morphed into the Baha'i faith, which is now the largest minority religion in Iran, despite the enmity of the state, or just as likely because of that enmity. Other minorities, like the Jews, are officially tolerated, but treated better than you might expect given the occasional anti-Semitic rhetoric. Speaking of which, anti-Zionism has even affected the Baha'i. Iranian politicians have wrongly accused them of conspiring with Israel. And the reason is really perverse. The exiled Baha'i leadership had found refuge in the Ottoman Empire, and more precisely, in a place that would later turn out to fall within the borders of the Jewish state, which could hardly have been foreseen at the time. But it gave the movement an even worse reputation nonetheless. Muhammad Shah Pahlavi profited from this, among others. He made a pact with the ulama that in return for their acceptance of his rule, the state would help orchestrate a campaign of terror against the Baha'i. The events got little media attention abroad, but some have labeled it a genocide. Now, that is a controversial term, obviously, and though these semantical discussions are important, I am ill-placed to have an opinion about it. The only thing that I will say is that it was absolutely horrific what the Baha'i had to endure, but that they are still the biggest minority in Iran somehow. Despite big parts of the clergy, the government, the army, and the general populace being set on their destruction, isn't it remarkable that such a hated and discriminated group still attract so many followers. Couldn't it be that, in a way, 
the Baha'i took on the role in Shiite Iran that Shiism used to play in Sunni countries, that of a quietist anti-political resistance to a government that is generally seen as unjust and illegitimate. Like a poem, Iranian history rhymes sometimes. And we are clearly nowhere near the last verse. For listen to this. The Economist, March 19, 2022. Quote, As Iran's domestic malaise deepens, the search for a savior is growing. Damagingly for the regime, many ardent millenarians come from its disillusioned inner core. Kuom, a shrine city and seat of leading clerics, produces the most pretenders. According to a recent police report, it once had 20 in a month. They included a would-be 12th imam and several babs or gates who prophesy his advent. End quote. But what accounts for these rhymes, all these endless recurrences, all these ironies? For at first sight, any wannabe messiah is, by definition, an exceptional character. Their personalities or eccentricities have a huge impact, lending credence to the great man theory of history. But should we not ask ourselves why such figures keep popping up and why they keep gaining such large followings? Within just a few years after the Babs coming out, there were already Babi cells in every major city. Why is that? Doesn't it seem likely that the circumstances somehow encourage this? It is partly a matter of past dependency, no doubt, but geography might play a part too. Iran has been compared to a mountain fortress. In such places, old customs and beliefs tend to persist since they can keep their distance from the enforcers of cultural or religious orthodoxy. As we pointed out earlier, some of these highlands were among the last places where Islam was accepted. Older religions, like Zoroastrianism and Christianity, persisted much longer there than in more accessible areas. The Buyids, the first Twelver dynasty that dominated Iran, came from one of these remote regions. In fact, they even claimed descent from the pre-Islamic nobility. Since Muslims and Zoroastrians lived side by side for centuries in Iran, it's almost certainly not a coincidence that there are so many striking similarities between Twelver Shiism and earlier local religions like Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism, including, for instance, the notion that the world is false and the notion of a hidden savior. So the past dependency runs much deeper than you might think. In the coming episodes, we will discover just how deep this rabbit hole goes. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. Bye.